trying to make the connection with the voter, knowing that you're just a normal person that has the same concerns, no matter what party you're from, and getting them to see you for you, not the R next to your name. And that was very important in my district, in my success, and my re-election success, and just being part of the community. Welcome to Political Contessa. I'm Jennifer Nassor, and this show is here to support your interests in center-right politics, policy, and breaking news. Listen in and discover how to awaken your inner ideal candidate and, if you're ready, how you can jump in and change the world as a runner or a supporter. Welcome to Political Contessa. If you or a friend have ever considered running or you know a woman who should, I've got something just for you. My quick guide called Secrets from the Campaign Trail. It will show you five signs to tell you you're ready to enter the political arena. To get these tips and learn about all new podcast episodes and ways to get involved, head over to politicalcontessa.com. Hello, and welcome to this episode of Political Contessa. I am Jennifer Nassor, your Political Contessa, and I am always happy to talk to you and talk about whether it's issues of the day or interviews with some really amazing women that are in the political space doing fabulous things and trying to change the world at one little bit at a time regardless of what they're doing. And so today I have someone with me who I am hoping is going to change Massachusetts for the better, because as a woman, as a former elected official and someone who is running for higher office, Kate Campanelli is running for Lieutenant Governor of Massachusetts. She declared her candidacy this spring And her primary is scheduled for September. Yes, yes, yes. In Massachusetts, we have September primaries, which is absolutely ridiculous with November elections, but it is what it is. It is called the Incumbent Protection Program. However, Campanelli was a member of the House of Representatives in Massachusetts from the 17th Worcester District, which if you don't know, Massachusetts is kind of plop center in the middle of the state. And she was elected in November of 2014. So she was in office from 2015 until the end of 2017. And now we are so happy that she is back because she is young. She is fiery. She is smart. And she is going to be the third woman in the corner office as lieutenant governor from Massachusetts. And I am so excited. So Kate, welcome to Political Contessa. Well, that was an introduction. Thank you so much, Jen. It is great to be with you today. I'm so excited because Chris Doty, who is running for governor, came out and uh, when he saw that the governor wasn't running and took a look at the landscape and saw that there was someone who has lost three elections and then decided that he was going to run for governor because that's always a good way. So if you lose for U.S. Senate running statewide and you lose for your state Senate seat, locally, then you should definitely run for governor. That makes complete sense. So seeing that there was going to be a third loss coming up, Chris decided to run and he needed to get a phenomenal running mate. And I think all of us who he spoke to, especially us women or mostly us women, 
suggested that it was a female, that it was someone who had already run for office, someone who knew what she was doing. And Kate's name came up a ton. I know from all of us that I have, all of us that I've spoken to, um, all of my friends in this world (laughs) that are women. And so Kate, it's like, it made me so happy that Chris had picked you. And so I want you to talk about, so one of the things I think that's really important for people to understand, it drives me crazy when someone has never done anything. And then they come out and they say, I'm running for U.S. Senate or I'm running for governor. And, you know, in your case, you're actually walking the walk that I tell people about, which is run for local office and then keep going up and build the bench. And so I think you are a perfect role model. So tell us how you got started, why you ran for state rep, all the background and how you got to where you are now. Sure. Well, you know, Jen, it's a a funny thing. As you get older, you start to put the puzzle pieces together of how you got to where you are. And I've been giving this some thought and it's really been something that's been instilled in me from a young age. My parents always encouraged me to be involved in the local community. I watched my mom be part of the Mother's Club and which is kind of like our PTA in town. My dad was an entrepreneur, if you will. He started his own painting company, but always made sure that we worked hard, were involved in the community, and always paying attention to current events and what was going on. And with that, I went to an all-girls school, Sweetbriar College down in Virginia, and they really instilled leadership there not only just on the college campus, but in our local community. They made sure we were, as students, as women, very involved. And I think that's something that I've just taken with me through my my whole career, and it's just become part of me. I started in politics. I took the first job I was offered. I graduated college in in 2007, took the first job I was offered, had no idea what it was (laughs) in D.C., And I was actually a staffer for a federal agency called Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation. And little did I know, my first task there was to help prepare the new director of the agency for a Senate confirmation hearing. Now, I'm new. I'm naive. I don't know what's going on. I'm going to committee hearings. I'm doing all this background research. And I just loved being there, sitting in those committee hearing rooms and seeing the history, being part of what was going on. And at such a young age, you know, uh, right out of college in DC, you feel like you're taking on the world. But as any young college student, I spent a few years in DC. It got very expensive. (laughs) Bills started to rack up. I was working two jobs and waitressing. So I decided to move home and, and save some money. But I came back home and I I specifically remember this. It was in the November 2009 period where Scott Brown was just starting to run for a special election here in, in Massachusetts for Senate. I had no idea what I was doing. All I knew is that I wanted to get involved. I felt the movement. I felt that energy of of people wanting change. And Scott Brown was that way. And I wanted to be involved. So I I just remember looking up, okay, how do I get involved? Where do I go? Uh, How does this work? And I found myself in the Worcester campaign office 
And I showed up there volunteering to make phone calls, never made a phone call in my life (laughs) for a political office. And I waited in line for an hour just to get on the phones. I mean, that's that was a feeling here in Massachusetts. It was time. amazing. It was. And to be part of that was just so energizing. And I think that's when I was really bit by the, the political bug, if you will. And it's amazing how just getting involved that little bit, you make so many connections and the networking and the people that you meet that are like-minded and just want to make a change and you feel part of this of this movement that you're doing something good and from there I just got involved from other statewide campaigns to to local elections to state rep campaigns and made my way into the state house I worked as a legislative aide for a bit in the state house, so learn the lay of the land there. And when I turned 28, the state rep seat where I lived here in the Worcester area became an open seat. And I'm like, you know what? I'm I'm going to run for that. I did as any good candidate would go through the numbers, and I had 55 percent or a little more registered Democrats in that district. So I had more Democrats registered in that district than independents and Republicans combined. And, you know, I knew I wanted to run as a Republican, as a conservative. Those are my core beliefs. And everyone around me was telling me, Kate, you know, you're you're not going to make it. You're not going to make it. But um, I was determined. And it goes to if you feel deeply about something and you're that determined, all those no's actually make you want to do it more. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and I have to say, we came out, obviously, as you, as you mentioned earlier in your podcast, successfully. And again, for re-election in 2016. And I think w- the point here is, as Republicans, especially in Massachusetts, where you don't think you have a chance, it's about reaching the voters, getting them to know you. You know, I knocked on all the doors in my district, uh, not once, but twice. And, you know, you're trying to make the connection with the voter, knowing that you're just a normal person that has the same concerns, no matter what party you're from, and getting them to see you for you, not the R next to your name. And that was very important in my district, in my success, and my reelection success, and just being part of the community. Yeah, it's almost like everything you said is exactly what I believe in and what I profess to candidates that I work with. And so for me, I started right out of college, just like you. I I went to a state university, um, you know, different than you. I went to a state university, but I studied political science and I came out and I got a job working for my state senator. And I spent time in Albany and I loved Loved every minute of it, but my starting salary was $15,000 a year. So I basically had to waitress every Friday, Saturday night and Sunday morning brunch. And I went to grad school at night. So I got my master's in political science as I was working. But the more I was you know, in the office than it was, you should run to be the head of the young Republicans in our county. And so I did that. And like little by little, the more I was involved, the more I wanted. And I had gone from the time I was 19, getting signatures on, on you know, nomination papers and the whole thing. But it was then that I was like, wait a second, 
there might be a possibility of running for office because I kicked the guy's butt that I was running against. He was like, you could be my second. I was like, I want to be your second. I want to be the first. <laughs> and so and it kind of went on in legislative life through I went to law school and I worked in the legislature. I started making a little more money. I still had to waitress because, you know, wasn't you don't make a ton of money, but the exposure is so amazing. And so all of those things that you did is exactly what I love, like, especially for a young woman out of college, getting to see what it was like, but then deciding to take that step and run for office. And I, again, I, I assimilate with you because when I ran for Boston city council, God knows, like it was completely lopsided Republicans and, and Democrats. And just for any, you know, for you to hear this, but, you know, Kate and I know this in Massachusetts that the unenrolled voters make up 56% of the electorate overall. But there are some of our little communities that it is, you know, very heavily Democratic registration over Republican. And so knocking on those doors, communicating with voters, having them, you know, understand the issues more than the party politics. And I think it's really important to take the party politics out and for voters to understand that, Stop voting for a person just because they have a letter after their name that you like. Vote for the person because you agree with them on the issues. Exactly. And that's how I became successful and how we became successful. And they do. They see you for a person and not your party. And that is so important. Yeah. And mm -hmm. I think being a nice person also has something to do with it, too. Yeah. <laughs> being approachable, <laughs> looking like you're going to listen to people and, you know, not like, you know, some of the politicians. It's like I can't imagine trying to have a conversation with Elizabeth Warren. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Yes. You're you know, it's about gaining their trust. Right. And, right. Yeah. Yeah. So, OK, so now you took some time off. And you got married and, mm -hmm. you know, now 2022 and you're running for LG. I did not see this on the radar, Jen. <laughs> so, as you said, you know, I love my time in the legislature, but life happens. I got married. Uh, okay. Settling down, you know, getting out of the, the running every two years, but I still wanted to stay involved here in Massachusetts our governor and lieutenant governor decided not to run for office to seek a third term, which I was honestly very disappointed with. And it just, when I heard that news, I'm like, okay, well, it is what it is. And the Democrats are just going to win the election this coming November. And we're just going to have to suck it up. And it's just going to be a bad year for us this year. And then I started hearing the name Chris Doty. And I I, I didn't know him, but uh, some mutual colleagues, Jen, you were probably part of this, but Chris called me and asked to have a meeting. So I sat down with him and it was one of those things where you instantly know within, I would say less than a minute of talking to Chris that I'm like, wow, he is a genuine guy. He is someone that has all the attributes of a leader and is deciding to run for governor of Massachusetts for all the right reasons. And just talking to him, having that conversation. And when he asked me to, to run with him for office, it was, it didn't take me any time to jump back in and say, absolutely. It would be an honor to serve with Chris. He, you know, he's coming with that executive level experience. 
he's run a manufacturing company here in Massachusetts, in Massachusetts of all places, uh, manufacturing car parts and being successful for 30 years. So just having that that executive experience and with my legislative experience, we just complement each other so well. And it's great to be in a partnership in a team with someone that's respectful, that you have the same views. And I think just a pathway to keep that corner office in Massachusetts, some kind of check and balance against the, the very democratic legislature we have. Yeah. So I always take it for granted that people, when I say Massachusetts is, you know, probably the bluest state in the country, that I have arguments with my colleagues that do what I do with Pocketbook Project around the country. And they'll say, oh, you should see, you know, Colorado, you should see. And I'm like, okay, look, listen, (laughs) we have like 36 members of the legislature between the House and the Senate that are Republican out of two. 136 out of 200. And look, as former chair of the Mass GOP, I will say, even when I was chair, I would say the same thing. It is not being hopeless. It is being a realist. There is no way we're going to flip those numbers. Not in this century. I don't see it. And so I think for me, the most important thing becomes the corner office, becomes the constitutional officers, because those are actually singular offices that we can be the check and balance for the legislature on, whether it's auditor, where we have a great candidate running for auditor and Anthony Amore, or the corner office with the governor and lieutenant governor. And one of the things that I think that our current administration has done so well on in Massachusetts is we are overflowing with money. For the first time in probably two decades, we are overflowing with money here. And I think that is because Charlie Baker is such a phenomenal manager, but he comes to the office with that expertise of being a manager, being a CEO, knowing what it's like to take a company, to watch the budget and to make sure that you always have the funds. And I think that that's one of the things that I see in Chris is being a manager like Charlie is to be able to keep this going in the way that it's going and make sure that the legislature is not mismanaging all the money that we have in Massachusetts right now. Exactly. We need that push to keep the legislature, that pushback to say, hey, you know, this isn't going to work. And if we get a Democrat in there, all we have to do, Jen, is look at how many states have a one party in control, you know, from Washington, Oregon, Illinois, and look what's happening there. And that could happen in Massachusetts. And going around the state these past few months, and now more and more with the nice weather and people out and about, you're having these conversations and people are worried about that. They're worried about, just like we were talking about before, no matter what party you're in, they're worried about that the public safety, our schools, the affordability. And that's those are our principles. That's what we're about. And there's a, a stark contrast between between our opponents and the Democrats this year. So I think it's relating to those voters about the issues that matter. Yeah, I mean, that 
living in Massachusetts. And I don't think it's different than what happened in Virginia, what almost happened in, in New Jersey, which is that the Republican message, it wasn't a social issue, it, no social issues. It was about what families need. It was about what individuals need. It was about success. You know, in Virginia, you know, when Glenn Youngkin was talking about parents having the right to be involved in their kids' education, the Democrats wanted to turn it on their head, on its head to be a social issue, but it's not a social issue at all. It's a right and wrong issue. It's an issue of respect and disrespect. And I think that in uh, Virginia, it was, Youngkin was showing that the schools, that the school districts were being disrespectful to families. And it's up to parents to teach respect to their kids. And if you teach respect as a parent, I, this is like big thing, right? You take all of the ridiculous issues that the media, the mainstream media and the Democrats want to spin and you turn them on their head. Because if you just teach basic respect of appreciate everyone as an individual, everyone has their own uniqueness and none of us are the same. And so if you just teach that, then your kids grow up appreciating for people for what they are instead of it being forced down their throats and taking it away from families. And so, you know, it's, it is all of our issues here are, it is very expensive to live in Massachusetts. Our public transportation is horrific to say the best <laughs> about it. We have a lot of nimbyism in our cities and towns where they do not want more housing put in their backyards, even though their backyards might be an acre or two, um, and it's not actually in their backyards. We have a lot of biotech, we have a lot of financial institutions, we have a lot of education, but I mean, I've sat on boards of universities and it's always, well, if that school down the block is increasing their tuition 5,000 a year, we should increase our tuition $5,000 a year. So education is out of control. And then we have some schools that are stellar and some schools that are failing. And we have a lot of people that just turn their heads around the other way. And by the way, in Massachusetts, those are a lot of Democrats, not Republicans. Mm, right. And then forget about the fact that there's, you know, on a national level, the inflation, the baby formula shortage, the fact that gas in Massachusetts, I posted something on Twitter like a month ago that my gas was like $5.50 a gallon. And someone goes, where in Massachusetts did you find that? Well, now I just filled up yesterday. It was like 6.30. I was like, holy cow, seriously? Like, do you live under a rock? Where do you live that you don't see? Like in Metro Boston, that's what gas is costing. Oh, sure. I could go on for hours. I could, <laughs> I could literally go on for hours to talk about every issue you just talked about. <laughs> but, um, but specifically, you know, I, I'll go back to education. And I think, as you said, in Virginia, we saw this, but in, in Massachusetts and states around the country, we're seeing more and more people getting involved, especially women in education, in their school board, uh, running for school committee. In a, in a time where a few years ago, I would say, and maybe this is still true, but it was a woman would have to be asked at least five times to run for office. Ten. Oh, ten. <laughs> ten times See, before they would even consider it. But now I feel like women are actually seeing this. They're encouraged and they're stepping up without being asked because they know it's the right thing to do and they need to get involved. And it's, it's unbelievable to see. And I think it's, it's just really causing this groundswell. 
of women getting involved in their community. And, you know, they're going to be the next ones that may hopefully run for a higher office. But education, I I do see as a driving force of this. Absolutely. Especially, again, in Massachusetts, like we have all these amazing higher ed institutions. Mm -hmm. And then you see school districts like Boston that are failing. You see other school districts like Wellesley and Weston that are um, sort of put in perspective. Those are kind of like right outside of the city school districts, but, you know, are flourishing. However, when you look at, we also have a ton of private schools, private elementary, middle school, high schools, and the conversation is being taken away from parents. And I think, you know, as a mom, what I have found is that more women want to discuss politics because they're really pissed off that they're not being allowed to raise their kids anymore. That someone says, you know what, you're too dumb. Well, you know what, as women who were pushed back and told to sit back, you know, be barefoot pregnant, have their kids and stay at home over the past 70 years, that has changed so much. And now we're basically being told by elected officials, people that are getting paid by tax dollars, whether you're a teacher or, well, I don't blame teachers, I blame administrators, administrators or private schools, and you pay the private schools. They're now saying, no, sorry, parents, you're too dumb. We don't trust you. You sit back and be quiet while we decide what's best for your kids. I think that that is a message that has propelled. Then you combine that with the fact that to take your kid to soccer practice or dance lessons or football or go see a hockey game, take them to Fenway Park, everything now costs more money across the board. I just threw a graduation party for my daughter. It was like prices continue to soar because the price of food is up, right? And it's like, you see these things happening and you say, wait, the Democrats have been pretty much completely in control on everything from national down to the legislature here. We see that when the legislature in Massachusetts doesn't like anything. And by the way, your legislature, if they're mostly Democrats and you have a Republican governor, they are overriding every veto that your governor has. And so that's a check and balance, right? And so they're able to do that, but you need to have that other voice in the corner office. And I think that's something, right? I mean, I'm sure those are the issues that you guys are talking about that you're hearing from people. Absolutely. You know, and it's gotten to that point, just like you said, Jen, where people are starting to make decisions based on the price of that life decisions, you know, whether they can afford to take their kids to soccer practice or travel, whether people on fixed incomes are, are able to go to their doctor's appointments or they need to buy groceries or their prescriptions. This was an issue before, but it's just exacerbated in the past year. Um, and it's just gradually getting worse. And going back to education, I was teaching for a few years after I left the legislature. So you see how this, how the pandemic and education has affected women a bit differently. As you probably know, the pandemic came, women are mostly in service industries or are the ones that take care of the kids. They're the ones that were laid off first or had to take time off of work due to remote learning due to hybrid learning, and they became the teachers. And, you know, I saw that firsthand, I was teaching in my living room, and you could just see everyone overwhelmed. 
you know, from losing their job to teaching their own kids and, and being exposed to what's actually going on in the classroom. It was just such a tough time, not only for parents and mothers, but the children themselves. And now we're just starting to see how the pandemic has affected everything. It takes some time and the next few years are going to expose a lot more that the past few years during the pandemic has had on us. Absolutely. I mean, I'll, I'll say everything from women who are working in, in the service industry to women that were at law firms. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, when we had to go remote, it completely changed everything. And I think, I mean, I'm one of those people who I had just finished my campaign for city council in 2019. I said, I'm going to take off through the holidays and then start. I started looking at CEO level positions at nonprofits and pandemic hit. And I was like, okay, I guess that that's over with because I didn't know if my kids were going to be back in school. I didn't know when they were going to be back in school. I didn't know if they were going to be remote at points. If someone was sick, then we were at the time you were quarantined for 14 days, you know, the whole thing. So it became very tough for any woman. I mean, I know women at law firms that had to leave because they just weren't able to, you know, get into the office, their lives changed kids are sick. What do you do? And so whether you work at Target or anywhere else, Mm -hmm. I I think it just really changed the scope for everyone. And what happened was we all started paying attention to what was being taught to our kids because they were learning next to where we were working (laughs) and, and you're kind of listening and multitasking and saying, wait a second, what, why did that come up? Why, why is that an actual issue? or your kids are home more. So they come out for lunch. You all have lunch together. Now you talk about what they were doing in school and how things changed. And when they all went back in person, then you're paying more attention to what's going on. And so I think that one issue got women more interested in what was going on. And I think that since the Biden administration has taken office, since that was also in the midst of the pan, you know, main crux of the pandemic, then all of a sudden women started saying, wait a second, if education is something that I wasn't paying attention to, then maybe I should pay attention to the financial stuff now too. How much does it cost if I want to take my kids on vacation? How much does it cost to fill up my car with gas? I'm a single mom. So like going to the food store, the food bill is outrageous to the point where I'm like, okay, so I think it's almost the same if we order out as if I go food shopping, which is pathetic because I have three daughters. One wants a salad, one wants a burger. You know, it's like everyone wants something different. I don't have to be a short order cook takes me less time. I don't have to go to the food store and I don't have to clean up. And so net, it ends up being the same. That's pathetic, right? And it's like, you see the cost of beef is up 40%. All those things. I think women have just, the pandemic made so many women say, wait a second, what the heck is this? And I think that makes it good for Republicans overall. But I think one of the things that Republicans nationally and your opponents in the primary miss is that it's not about social issues. It's about the meat and potato issues. It's about your kitchen table issues. It's about the things that you talk about with your family every day. And those are the issues that voters, especially here in Massachusetts, 56% of the electorate hopefully are voting on. Absolutely. Uh, Again, those are the conversations we're having. These are what's on on the top of 
everybody's mind, no matter where you go, whether you're sitting down at family dinner, like you said, on, on Sunday, or you're outside a town meeting going everywhere. These are the issues. Oh, it cost me a hundred dollars to fill my tank. Oh, well, can you believe it cost me this much at the grocery store the other day? Exactly. This is what people care about. These are the issues. It's not about, and that's, again, that's what we have to connect with voters on. It's not about the social issues. It's about the real issues that affect people and what we can do to help them. Yeah, definitely. So what are the top three things that you and Chris are talking about on the campaign trail and make you different than the others, the Democrats and your primary opponents? I think we're talking about affordability. Again, I could go on for forever about this, but it's the price of electricity. You know, we're going back to being realistic. We can't do anything about inflation in Massachusetts, but there are things we can do to help give a little relief to the taxpayers. And that's electricity and the cost of fuel here. You know, from we have the, the worst regulations in the country as far as clean energy. You know, we freeze, we dig our energy down in the islands, freeze it, bring it up in tanker trucks. That's not clean. <laughs> we have plenty of natural gas. We, we can bring down hydro from Quebec. Like these are things that would give immediate relief to people in Massachusetts. Also housing, as you mentioned, you have all the not in my backyard, but I think affordable housing has gotten just a bad reputation. Not public like housing. housing. Public housing, right. thank you. You know, it, it's about, we need a workforce here that can first time home buyers, people with young families that are just starting off that, that need that good job in our community. Yeah, young teachers, young firefighters, young police officers, they're all working in our communities and they can't live there. Exactly, exactly. So we, we really need to get that message out. Now, again, education, it's on the top of everyone's mind. And with us, it starts at the top. It, as you know, Jen, the governor it can appoint that secretary of education appoint so many commissioners within that secretariat that can work with the school administrations on curriculum, on just getting back to the basics. Our kids have fallen so far behind. We need to get back to reading, writing, arithmetic. And also to be perfectly honest, making sure we have mental health services in our schools. You know, we see our kids really suffering right now. And third, it's making sure we keep those relationships with our cities and towns. That's important for any Commonwealth, any state to have healthy relationships with their government. You know, I think our current administration, the Baker Polito administration, did a great job with going out to every community in Massachusetts and saying, what do you need? How can we help? And not forcing mandates on them, not forcing anything, but be there to help them and give them the guidance that they need. So keeping those relationships and making sure our cities and towns are the priorities and making sure they have the resources they need for schools, public safety, all the vital resources, that, that's a priority for us. So those are, those are the issues that, that we're talking about. I think that's awesome. When I was running for city council, affordable housing came up all the time because my very young opponent was a housing expert, which just graduated with her PhD. So she was an expert. And so what I kept saying was, I am absolutely for affordable housing for those people 
I mean, I know the teachers at my kids' schools have to come from miles and miles away. And sometimes, you know, if there's an accident on one of our highways, then they get to school late. And well, why aren't we making it easier for them to live and work in the communities that they live in the communities that they work in and make it more affordable? It's not about giving stuff away and making it so that way it's just, you know, public housing, which we need to fix and we need to make it so that way those folks can also like find mobility to live in their communities. So that's all stuff that I think is so important and for people to understand is that, you know, we want to create communities that folks who do live in public housing can upwardly move out, move on, give them opportunities and find them paths and, you know, to also provide housing for the folks who are working in our communities who really need quality housing at yes. than, than we see right now. I mean, I'm older and I've gone through the first little tiny place, the second place, the third place to the fourth place, because, you know, that's the only way you get there. But you can't just buy your dream home at 25. You need a place to live that's safe and clean and nice and, you know, whatever. So um, exactly. but I, I love that. I think that those are the things that are so important for us here in Massachusetts. And, you know, they're different for everyone in every state. We don't have some of the same issues that other folks have. I mean, thank God we're we're still a relatively safe state. We don't have the violence that we see in Chicago or in San Francisco, you know, and for major metropolitan, for a state that has not only one major metropolitan city, but a few very large cities, we're still relatively safe, which is nice. So I think for us, it is more the priorities, making sure that we do keep our state continuously safe and that we don't have radical attorney generals and district attorneys, making sure that we have all of our laws and there's, you know, we keep chaos at bay, but not involving ourselves too much in things that we don't have to get involved in. But I think that you and Chris have a winning campaign out of everyone else who is out there. And I, for one, am super excited, but I think more importantly for our listener is just your route of getting involved and what propelled you to get involved and why you make a great candidate and why you should be a role model and an inspiration for anyone who is either coming out of college or for someone who, you know, is older and said, you know what, you're right. Like I am annoyed by this subject and I want to have my voice heard and maybe run for office, encourage your friend to run for office, right. Or just go out there and help Kate on her campaign. <laughs> I would love the help. Yeah, absolutely. But uh, Jen, it's, it's doing exactly what you're doing and it's giving back to you. It's encouraging other women, especially young women. I love talking to, to high schoolers and college age women about getting involved because they may be nervous or hesitant. I remember this one conversation I had with this young girl out of college and she wants to run for office. She's like, but you know, I have these, these pictures that were posted on social media and I'm just so worried about those coming out. I'm like, you know what? It's about being proactive. Don't let something stop you from running, you know, just be proactive about it, own an issue and just move forward and run. And if there's anything you like, exactly. Just, just start somewhere and you never know where it will lead you. 
That is exactly, oh my God, I'm so glad you said that because that is why most women don't run is because they say, well, what if this and what if that? And mm-hmm. I mean, I'm old enough where we didn't have, uh, we had cell phones that looked like, you know, the, <laughs> the size of your arm and didn't have cameras on them. So, you know, different generation, but for any woman, I think it's always the same thing. The fear of what if this, what if that, but I say to candidates all the time, the same thing, listen, you own your own shit right? Mm -hmm. Own your stuff. Like you own your stuff. And then the second you do, no one ever has any questions about it again, because you've already said, yeah, okay. And nothing to see here. Right. And then it's, it's over. So I think that that is really an important point. So thank you for mentioning that because I think that's great. So Kate, seriously, I would love for our listener to sign up for your campaign to help in any way. I mean, now in this world of things being virtual, there's always an opportunity, whether you live in Colorado or you live in Texas or California or Massachusetts to help on a campaign, even just by making phone calls. And then there's also the option to just donate because we live in a very, very, very expensive media market here in Massachusetts. The Boston market is up in the top five most expensive in the country. And so the campaign needs to pay for everything from advertising to mailers. And so you need donations. So what is the website? Oh, I would love to hear from you wherever you are. I would love to hear from you. Please send me a message. Look me up. Um, You can go to my website at Kate4LG. That's F-O-R-L-G for Lieutenant Governor. Uh, Kate Campanelli for Lieutenant Governor on Facebook. You can find me. You can message me there as well but would love to hear from you. Reach out, happy to give advice as well. And would love to have you be a part of this. That is awesome. Thank you, Kate. And I'm sure that everyone appreciates hearing that because there are lots of people who want to get involved. And and again, I really do think you're an inspiration. So Kate Campanelli, thank you so much for being on this episode of Political Contessa. And I hope that we can hear from you again after you're successful in September. And hopefully we could drive some more folks to your website and to help on the campaign after that. And hopefully we get to talk to you again when you're Lieutenant Governor. I'd love that. (laughs) Thank you, Jen. You're welcome. So thank you for being with me today on Political Contessa. This is Jennifer Nassor, your Political Contessa. And I hope that you have a wonderful day. Stay happy, healthy, and safe. Thanks so much for listening to Political Contessa. For all the ways to listen and to get the inside scoop on what's happening in center-right politics for women like us, head over to politicalcontessa.com. 